welcome everybody. I'm Mary Caldor. I'm <coughs> Professor of um, Global Governance in the Department for International Development. And I'm the uh, Executive Director of this new conflict research program, which is funded by the Department for International Development. And I'm just here to welcome you, and I'm now going to pass over to Lise Doucette, who we're very lucky to have with us, the chief, uh, BBC's chief foreign correspondent, and anybody who's <coughs> watching, been watching television recently will have seen Lise in the most terrible and tragic places, giving, telling us what's happening. And so we're very lucky to have her, and she's going to moderate the discussion. So I will now hand over thank to you. Lise. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for coming out on this wintry London evening where there are many demands on your time, especially the students. We're very pleased that you're here because the issues that we are discussing today are not just theoretical issues, academic issues, issues just for research. They are questions which have, it's not an exaggeration to say, a life and death impact on all too many places in our, in our world. And I always say that we live in the best of times and in the worst of times. Never has our technology been so good to let us know what is happening anywhere in the world and to allow journalists and academics and others to tell us what is happening. No one of you can say, we didn't know. And never have our institutions been so strong. Human rights, human rights councils, understandings of international humanitarian law. But why then, ladies and gentlemen, do we have the kind of wars now so bad and so long that we describe them as forever wars. And why do so many armed groups, state and non-state, believe they can get away with it? This, in simple terms, goes to the heart of what this conflict research is all about. And we have some very distinguished, not just scholars, but practitioners with us. Sitting next to me is Reem Turkmani. I've known Reem for a very long time because of her work on her own country, Syria. And I describe Reem as someone who's trying to make peace and being an advisor to the UN on the very difficult efforts to try to bring the two, the, well, many sides to the negotiating table in Syria. So she tries to make peace, but she also studies war. She studies the war economy in Syria. And she also discovered, not just studies, but is an active participant in trying to strengthen civil society in responding and being still a player in these very, very difficult circumstances that are Syria. We also have Rachel Ibrek with us, who's going to look at the politics of human rights, of civil society, and justice. Um, a lot of her work focuses on Africa, particularly South Sudan, but she wants to look at these issues in the context of conflict, and yes, indeed, genocide, genocide in our time, particularly in Africa. Down at the very end, you know, we live, it's, it's women's year, isn't it? So the women have to go first. <laughs> um, Toby Dodge, I've also known for a very long time, with his, starting with his work at Chatham House. He is now a professor here. At the, he's the head of the London School of Economics Middle East Centre. He's the Kuwait professor and also professor of international relations here at LSE. How many of you are studying with Toby Dodge? 
apologies. No, <laughs> one student, one student. No, there must be more. Two in the, they're all sitting in the back. And last but not least is Javier Solana. And most of you will know that Javier Solana used to be the EU's foreign policy chief. He had to confront some of the really, really difficult challenges of our time. And I have to say, I was very glad when he stopped his job because we had a little competition as to who had more frequent flyer miles. <laughs> and now he's not traveling as much since he's the visiting professor at LSE, but he's still keeping a very sharp eye on the world and what's working and what's not. And then there's all of you. We would like you to be a participant as well because you also, um, some of you I'm sure are studying these issues and those of you who are students may either here in Britain or in other countries around the world may go back to work on the very kind of issues that we're working on today. So we want your input as well. So let us begin. Rachel is going to start off for us the way it's going to proceed. Each of our scholars is going to... I'm just going to give a brief description of Oh, that. okay. <laughs> Only God is perfect. <laughs> Back to Mary Caldwell. Sorry, I was, I, I, I'm sure, I'm longing to hear Rachel, mm. but actually I was just going to very briefly describe to you what the conflict research program is, and they will be representing different aspects of the program. Um, and this is the launch of the program, uh, and the launch of our website, which you can see more about what we do. Um, so, the Conflict Research Program has been established to really understand what drives violence in these difficult places and to try to look at what kinds of interventions might work in terms of reducing violence. And I think our starting point is really that we understand conflict as a social condition uh, rather than necessarily, it may be that, as a deep-seated political contest, which is how we tend to think of conflict, rather it's a social condition in which various actors have a range of motivations for continuing violence. And it's because it's a social condition that it, it's a kind of system, an ism almost, uh, that is, explains why it's so difficult to end. Why we have these long-running conflicts in the world, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, that nobody seems to know how to end. And our starting point is, isn't the way to end it, to try to analyze this social condition and to think of ways to reverse the social condition. So that's really what we're trying to do. And Central to the way we're trying to analyze it is the notion of public authority, which we share with another center who are all up there somewhere at LSE. There they are, there's Tim Waving, called the Center for Public Authority. Um, and, you know, in a lot of the literature on wars, the focus is either on the state or on what are known as informal or hybrid institutions. And by using the term public authority, we wanted to escape from that. We wanted to argue that in, the, in, in conflict zones, there are many different types of public authority. They could be religious and customary authorities. They could be armed groups. Uh, they could be uh, international institutions like the United Nations or the African Union. 
or they could be local municipalities. And what's important to understand is not whether they're top-down or bottom-up, but how do they work? <coughs> how do these public authorities work? And we talk about the logic of public authority, and we talk about three different types of logics. So one logic we call the logic of the political marketplace, which is really all about money. It's about how in these public authorities, particularly the state, of course, um, politicians compete not in order to carry out programs, but in order to get access to money. You could say it was corruption, but it's more systemic than that. In fact, you can't actually participate without having what my <coughs> colleague Alex Dewal, who invented the concept, calls a political budget. You need a political budget in order to get access to the state, and the access to the state gives you a political budget, and violence is absolutely key in the bargaining process. You know, we've come across many instances, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where people have formed armed groups in order to participate in peace agreements, in order to get access to the revenue of the state, because by participating in a peace agreement, you get to participate in the state. The second logic is what we call moral populism, which really refers to extremist ideologies, it could be extremist jihadism, it could be identity politics, extreme nationalism, it could be sectarianism. And certainly in the first year of our program, what we're really interested <coughs> in investigating is do these two logics go hand in hand? Are, is there a link? And that's going to be the focus of our research the first year. And then we have a third logic which we call civicness. And that's more or less the logic of the social contract. It's the logic you often find in local municipalities. You might find it in, the, in, in some of the international agencies where there is an idea that you're there to, do, to provide public services and for mutual self-help. And that's very much going to be the focus of our work in the second year. In all the conflict areas we study, you know, when we watch television, we see the most violent bits. But actually, all of these areas are very decentralized, very fragmented, and you always find relatively peaceful areas. And so it's important to understand why those areas are peaceful and whether what they have that makes them peaceful can be reproduced. I'm not going to say any more. I'll say we have five sites which we focus on, <coughs> Iraq, Syria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Congo. We're looking at, we're, we're, we've got a particular focus on interventions. This year we're looking very much at security sector reform. Um, and um, we're going to look at other interventions uh, interventions in support of civil society, <coughs> community <coughs> mediation, resource management, as well as examining these broader <coughs> political economy mechanisms. But I think I shall stop there, and we can go back to hearing from the various members of the team. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Mary. And we know Mary has just finished another great 
another great book looking at um, some part, at least some part of these these issues, which I'm sure you're all avidly reading now. So those three logics then: logic of the political marketplace, moral populism, and civicness. Going to those those three areas will come up again and again, I think, in our discussion tonight. Don't forget that if you're an avid tweeter, if you can listen intently, take notes, and tweet at the same time, well done. It'll be hashtag LSE C, uh, CRP, Conflict Research Program. Now to you, Rachel. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks. So um, as Lise was saying, my work is really looking actually at trying to look at civil society and justice questions. And in particular, I've been looking at legal activism um, in South Sudan, and I'm writing up some work on that now. But what I'm really here to do tonight is to sort of speak on behalf of a team of uh, researchers um, attached to the CRP um, South Sudan team, um, led by Alex Duval, and also bringing together um, a newly constituted group of South Sudanese <coughs> researchers. And what we're really trying to do, as Mary's explained, is get a deeper understanding. We've, many of us, been working on these um, issues in conflict for s quite some time, but we want to get a deeper understanding of the patterns and logic of violence conflict. And I want to sort of talk a bit about, just in general terms, the context of the war, uh, for those of you who might not have been following it very closely, and then where we are in terms of our understanding of it at the present moment, and how then we want to approach the research and take it forward in a more practical sense. Um, so essentially in terms of context, um, you know, this is one of those wars without end, <laughs> as you were as you were talking about, and very much one of the wars that almost fits Mary's classic definition of a new war. This is a war which has, um, you know, flared up and subsided at different times, and really we're focusing mainly in uh, the current research program on the war that broke out um, after uh, December 2013. Uh, but of course, you know, South Sudan and the wars in the Sudans have been running for quite <laughs> many years, I mean, over 50 years, um, with, you know, sort of only brief periods of respite. And so this is a very fascinating context really to try to understand war. Um, it has been, you know, as new wars tend to be, remarkably persistent over time. And um, I suppose the current war, one of the sort of obvious factors to sort of bear in mind is that what seemed to be a clash between two factions um, in December 2013, a sort of split in the um, military political elites um, that have been governing South Sudan since its independence, um, well, really since the peace agreement in 2005 and then since independence in 2011, um, split apart and it looked like two factions of the, um, the National Army, the SPLA-IO, and the SPLA um, fighting each other, but very rapidly this sort of morphed into a much more complex, fragmented, widely dispersed set of conflicts, really multi-layered, um, with all sorts of parties proliferating different levels and groups mutating and the dynamics shifting over time. So um, we can also say that within this there are patterns that kind of conform to this idea of the, of the uh, you know, mutual enterprise <laughs> that Mary's referred to. I, I speak in terms of these new wars because I think many of you will be familiar with that work. And, um, and you can see, I mean, it's almost blatant extraction of economic benefits. Um, and if you follow the news on South Sudan, you will just see how, uh, you know, how blatant that is, in particular recent century reports talk about this. And again, you know, violence against civilians, extremely high. We've got, 
you know, massive displacement internally, over two, two million um, refugees, over two million, um, you know, five million sort of dependent on aid, you know, famine declaration in 2017, threat of famine constantly looming again, and, you know, a recent sort of survey by, um, well, this was during the conflict, actually, a very um, incredible piece of work over, t over a, um, a thousand people surveyed and, uh, you know, showed sort of 41% levels of trauma, uh, which is sort of comparable to rates after the genocide in Rwanda. So that's the kind of broad picture. And it also means that um, such is the sort of multi-layered nature and grievances at different levels that, and the deep, deep uncertainty that what seems, you know, sometimes like even a micro-level dispute can flare up very, very quickly and escalate. Um, and the peace arrangements actually not only haven't solved this, but, you know, some would argue have um, further exacerbated the conflict. So there was a peace deal in 2015, and this uh, sort of, the conflict after, thereafter sort of spread even further and intensified. So in this context of kind of relentless war and suffering, I think it really absolutely makes sense um, that young South Sudanese activists and artists who are mobilizing for peace are, are doing so under the slogan Anata Ban. They're just saying, I'm tired. They've had enough. And, and so I think that's the kind of broad context that we're looking at. Um, but what I wanted to say is something about the approach that we're taking and how we understand the politics of the situation. So what's distinctive about CRP approach, we've already sort of heard a bit about the fact that on one hand it's based on this extended ethnographic research which has allowed us to generate concepts which are really from political vernaculars. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, we've got, as Lise was saying, we've got people engaged in the project who are really not just thinking in the abstract, but acting and engaged in trying to um, efforts, you know, active efforts to promote peace agendas. And in many ways, this is how we've um, come to understand what's going on in South Sudan is through Alex Duval's long-term engagements in peace uh, making in the Sudans. Um, and so for us, um, the approach is sort of to continue in that vein, but also to continue in a dialogue with um, South Sudanese researchers and scholars to try to reflect on the findings um, and generate ideas relevant for policies. Um, now, in terms of the actual understanding of the conflict, for um, you know, South Sudan is really the, the context in which this idea of the political marketplace is so explicit, <laughs> it's almost hard to, you know, miss it. Um, I think one of the key points to note here is that um, where, you know, what's central to this concept is not to think about war as an aberration, but rather to think about it as a sort of central <coughs> to the dominant mode of historical governance in um, this region. And um, to identify that actually what's going on is not just a failure of state institutions, but a form of real governance which is trying to manage um, the sort of extreme conditions of turbulence at the global margins, essentially, with more or less sort of skillful political business managers, um, you know, negotiating for political loyalties and often making cash payments in order to do so. Um, and as Mary was saying, you know, violence has been used in a signal in this political marketplace and really who are those who are at the core of it is this sort of group of military political elites that Majak Dagut refers to as South Sudan's gun class. But um, what's been sort of important to note is that in the period that we've been studying this 
um, conflict, and particularly Alex has observed, is sort of a shift from a period in after 2005 where there was actually some degree of management and there was possibility of kind of buying elites into um, a sort of payroll piece into a disintegration and what he calls a collapsed political market. Um, this is a sort of system which is highly <coughs> dependent on oil. In 2011, uh, the government, in a dispute with Sudan, switched off the, um, the tap on the oil and, as a result, didn't have the reserves to actually manage the political business. <laughs> and um, the market effectively collapsed. So really what we're trying to understand is how it's evolved over time in this context without the budgets to manage the market. How are um, those elites staying in power? What are their relationships um, downwards? What are the kind of networks of governance? And we're very clear that there are actually sort of relationships between those uh, at the elite level and the, those maybe in their home communities. And that's where a lot of our research will really actually be focusing is trying to understand from below what's happening on the ground and trying to understand not just over time, which is one of the unique op opportunities of this project, but also over space because, um, as Mary was saying, this is incredibly fragmented. And what power looks like and what the experience of the war is can very much differ from place to place. So we're trying to take that opportunity to actually compare different sites and have researchers in different sites to to look at um, the differences there. And then finally, to bring this research into dialogue, as I said before, with um, some of the um, South Sudanese scholars who have been reflecting in different ways themselves, but sort of bringing them into a conversation, both on paper and kind of face-to-face -to, -face to try to think about what the policy implications of the findings are. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. Very much a little. Um, a little capsule history of, of South Sudan, which I think is very emblematic of the wars of our time, where you have a binary conflict with two major factions or warring, warring sides, sometimes armies, which is, to use the word, constantly mutating, and so it then spins off into other conflicts. And at the same time, it ha there's a massive and deepening humanitarian disaster and a peace deal, which doesn't bring peace, but actually brings about more war. Very, very interesting observation about how war is not an aberration. I mean, that is a real, it's both very, very clever, but it's also very depressing because it means that war is now a state of being. It's not going to end, and so it becomes the way the society organizes itself. And that, that phrase of Alex Dewell, a political budget, I think we're all going to steal that. So very interesting, and I, I think we should also flag up your emphasis on working with South Sudanese scholars, that this is very much a collaborative effort, working with people on the ground. But thank you very much for sketching that out. And, it, and, and in fact, you could just take the details and it could apply to, to Syria as well. We're going to move now to Rim Chukmarni. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, good evening. Uh, I will be speaking on the behalf of an expanding team for the Syria Conflict Research Program. Uh, we have uh, local partners in Lebanon, and we have other partners who joined us through the Small Grants Program also, which is part of the Conflict Research Program. We are trying the Syria program to use the framework that Mary explained to unpack the complexity of the Syrian conflict, the very dynamic complex complexity of the Syrian conflict, with the hope that with the evidence-based approach that we will bring and the uh, uh, theoretical analysis that uh, uh, we have 
to be able to advise better policies and to be able to uh, advise better intervention to counter the violence in Syria. And not just in Syria, of course, elsewhere. Uh, what's different about what we're trying to do, I know there's a lot of research now on Syria. What's different is that first we try to focus a lot on the local dynamics. There's a tendency now to see Syria through the geopolitical lens. A lo lots of people now, the news talks about what does Russia want, what does the US want, what does Iran want, what, but what do the Syrians want? Because we believe it has to, everything has to be rooted in the local legitimacy. What do people actually want? What's happening actually on the ground? What are the actual dynamics driving the conflict right now on the ground? The second thing is that we're trying to move away from this tendency to see Syria as a map with different patches with different colors. We cannot simplify the complexity of Syria by saying, oh, let's study the dynamics in the opposition-controlled area. Let's study them in the regime-controlled area. Let's do it in this patch, you know, besieged here. Let's, it doesn't work like this. Uh, it's all interrelated, very connected, although actually on the surface it does look as completely different, different dynamics, uh, completely different drivers. Um, we see the lack of political legitimacy as the root of the crisis in Syria, the root of which was challenged in exactly seven years ago. And uh, the re regime faced this challenge of its legitimacy by using violence and identity politics to deflect, deflect from those original demands for basic rights and freedom. Uh, identity politics has already been used uh, for decades in Syria by the regime and even before the regime, and it exploited every existing social cleavage in the country to um, empower the regime and make sure that the society will never have the opportunity to actually have a, have a dialogue to, to find its identity. With the Syria as a young state is only 75 years old. There is no social contract. The society never had the chance to actually decide what, what is the Syrian identity. We have a real Syrian identity crisis. So playing on identity politics was one of the main tools that were used by the regime before and after was used by almost every, uh, uh, every actor in the, uh, in the conflict. The result is the complexity that we see now. But still, if we look at every area, we see almost the same roots. However, we also recognize that Understanding these roots, understanding the Syrian grievances is not enough at all to explain the current conflict or the current level of violence and the persistence of this violence. Rather, that the, the protest movement that started seven years ago created a context which was exploited by the violent actors and we are where we are now. These actors, some of them are Syrian, many of them are not. <coughs> we are now at a stage where we have a vested interest among most of these actors in the continuation of violence, and that's what we're also trying to understand. Take an example, the uh, uh, war economy, which is one of the uh, five themes of uh, uh, um, our research program on Syria. We're trying to understand the local economic drivers of the conflict. And although they look completely different from one area to, the, to another, but every area almost now in Syria is being driven economically by the conflict. Everyone's life and uh, profit is being driven out of the conflict, not of the, of the peace. And this one, again, you cannot understand by looking at each area on its own. Take the trade movement. Trade is still flowing from one area to the other. Uh, uh, you have to understand that to understand how the economy is flowing all across the country. The identity dynamics, again, 
you can't understand them only looking at one area. It's only a manifestation of one thing, displaying on the social cleavages, trying to make this conflict look as Arab Kurdish, Sunni Alawite, uh, 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 city versus countryside. But the root is the same. It's, 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 it's this people who wanted to move beyond the identity and they're finding people who are deflecting them away from this everywhere. And this again has been practiced by almost every actor, opposition, Kurdish, everyone in Syria. Uh, so we have identity politics as one of our main themes as well, which we're trying to understand, uh, try to understand also how can we prevent that the solution proposed for Syria, because the solution is not coming only from the bottom, unfortunately, the solution is coming also from the top, from processes like the Geneva Peace Process, which talks about constitution. Constitution means identity means who are we, how are we governed. We're trying to understand how can these solutions uh, allow that space for the identity debate in Syria and not impose, impose a new framework that frames Syrians uh, according to their identity because we think this is just another way of planning for another war to come. We can't frame them as Sunni, Alawite, Kurds, Arabs. They, they, what they wanted is to be citizens with full and equal rights. Uh, we try to understand uh, as well through mapping, actual mapping on the ground, what is the actual public authority in Syria, the public authority that Mary spoke about. Who, is, who governs everywhere in Syria? Who is actually in charge? The actual citizens, people in the ground, wh what do they encounter? What kind of institutions? We're trying to map these institutions, whether former or informal, even this, the, the, the family, the clan, all kind of institutions. Uh, how do they function their power? Those new authorities, how are they functioning their powers? Is it through institutions? Is it through networks? Is it through force? Is it through uh, illegal activities? Um, we try to understand the interplay between the individuals and the institutions. Uh, <coughs> and we try to understand why some of the new institutions were formed, because we had so many emerging institutions also as a result of the conflict. Why were they formed? Is it to create a new social reality, create new expectations? Are they being resisted? By understanding this, we're trying to understand how we can build a new legitimacy that comes from the bottom uh, up and not the other way down. Uh, so with focus on governance and anti-politics and, 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 and war economy as one of the drivers, we also try to focus on the good story, which is the civil society and civicness, because a lot is going on. We don't see it in the media, but you take Ghouta, for example, all what we see now is bloodshed and massacres, but in this very difficult moment in Ghouta, there's leaders from civil society came together and formed a civic committee, and they decided they want to stand up to all the uh, armed groups, and they're taking action, and they're negotiating their own rights, and they're, they're creating new links now through other civil society organizations on the other side of Damascus. There's a lots of good things going on, and we're trying to understand how we can build on this, whether on the a societal level or also on the top level where the Syrian civil society, although seven years old, already managed to lobby for itself to be formally present at the uh, UN negotiation table in, uh, in Geneva. And finally, the, the last thing we're trying to look at is reconstruction. This is the theme that brings everything together. We're trying to understand how reconstruction can be part of the solution and not reinforce the, the roots of the crisis and the current situation where we are. We have 
now a network of chronic capitalists. We have a very corrupt structure in Syria, not just in the regime controlled area, everywhere. How can reconstruction avoid cementing this uh, uh, corrupted structure and feeding this corrupt institution? How can it instead actually help to build a new institution, new social reality, even help to heal uh, the new rift? And we're hoping to make recommendation to that end. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Reem. This, I have, to, I have to tell you, is part of the research that is both very exciting and very essential. It is literally what you don't see in Syria. And I can say, you know, guilty as charged, that in journalism, we tend to focus on the colors on the map. And there are, with every year, there are more colors in terms of outside powers in Syria. And we also focus on, on the big wars, the wars within wars. But Reem's research has been, and will continue to expand as part of this, this new program, is to look at what she describes as local dynamics. And I have to say that when I read a draft of Mary's book, I became very excited because she calls on all of us, and this is what this research will do, is to not to look only at where it's not working, but to look where it is working, that there are these local councils, as Reem said, these, this new the, the public authority, as, as Mary described in her conceptual um, sketch. But there's also, what keeps the war economy going? There are, people always say to me when I go to Syria, how do people survive? People do survive because there is this trading going on and a lot of it, and people benefit from it, which is of course what, not only what keeps the war going, but also prevents it from, from being, being stopped. So I think it is very, 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 very important part because it brings us down to another level of understanding. And it's only through this understanding that you can try to begin to expand the areas which are working and to bring some kind of local peace, but also what everyone talks about now, and that is the reconstruction. Thank you. Toby Dodge, you have a hard, you have a hard job to follow. Right, well, thank you for- we, I know we won't be disappointed. Setting the bar so high. Yes. Um, Right, what I want to do is use two concepts from the CRP, the political marketplace and moral populism, and if I've got time, civicness as well, to explain what the team of researchers we have at LSE and our partners across Iraq are doing. Now, I think the first thing to say, and you maybe I can see some skeptical eyebrows being raised, is why is Iraq here at all? As you know, Mosul was liberated by Iraqi government forces last year. Uh, those forces then went on to bring Kirkuk back into uh, government control, and we're looking forward to a, a national elections in May. So, good news story, uh, unlike the rest of these places. We noticed at least it doesn't go to Baghdad much anymore, because oh. there's, there's not, a, and, and we miss her, and we miss her, my uh, but there isn't much conflict there. But what I'd say to you as a, a chastening warning is Iraq is in a window at the moment. And that window is comparable to the aftermath of the invasion in 2003 right up to 2005 when a, mili a predominant military force broke the opposition but did nothing to solve the political problems. And Iraq, as we know, entered civil war in 2005. Then we have from February 2007 to 2011 the so-called American surge where, again, a, a, a dominant military force used all the power that George Bush could muster and broke the military opposition. And that's exactly what's happened with the fight against the Islamic State, that basically with a huge US international backing, a, a rather ramshackle force of militias and the Iraqi army have once again broken a violent, horrendous military opposition 
But as yet, the political drivers, those structural problems that have dominated the Iraqi polity since at least 2003 haven't been tackled. And of course, against that background, the great danger is everyone goes home with that good news story and then Dash Mark II, the Islamic State Mark II, or something else is driven out to violently <coughs> challenge the Iraqi state. So first, let's look at that big concept that Mary outlined, moral populism. If we look at post-2003 Iraq, the polity was deliberately divided up and separated by returning politicians, former exiles, using ethno-religious politics, dividing the population up, and but then using that as a shield behind which to loot the state, the resources of the state. So every election since to the two in 2005 have been, have been fought under what in Arabic is called the Mahasasa system or the apportionment system, as this election in May will also be fought under that system. So the political parties go in, they play to the lowest uh, common denominator, which is divisive, sectarian, and ethnic fear-mongering, and then once they get into government, they then divide the resources of the state amongst themselves, handing out ministries, and more depressingly, the budgets that they bring to the victorious parties that then use those resources either for political corruption, uh, party uh, building, or personal corruption. I remember that it was a mini house boom around Sloan Square after 2003 when formerly exiled Iraqi politicians offshored the money that they'd stolen into London property like their Russian counterparts before them. So that moral populism, the dividing up of the polity, the, um, the, 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 the play on sectarian identities has haunted Iraqi politics and driven, driven it into um, conflict. Running parallel to that, is this political marketplace. As I've described, the looting of the state, the, 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 the stripping of uh, resources by the main political parties for their faction members and their own personal corruption. And I'll give you a little factoid. Just after the elections, uh, just after the invasion in 2003, the state payroll was 850,000 employees. Uh, today, it's nearly 3 million, 285 uh, million. Where have those people come from? And more importantly, what on earth are they doing? If the state could run with 850,000 uh, people, why are there nearly 3 million employees? Because as each political party takes over a ministry, it then sells <coughs> ministerial payrolls and jobs in return for political loyalty. So what we have at the moment is a bloated state payroll with low oil prices. Iraq is increasingly indebted. A divided and traumatized population where its ruling elite is trying to mobilize that population through ethno-sectarian div division. And that would be an incredibly depressing picture if it wasn't for Mary's third category of civicness. Now in 2015, remember that year because it's only a year after Mosul fell, in the middle of an Iraqi summer, now you can imagine the temperatures down in the south of the country in Basra, there was a massive demonstration, an explosion of popular outrage, 
where people for, what's that, the 12th year after uh, the invasion had not got enough electricity to run their refrigerators, to pump water, to have air conditioning or even fans. And they mobilized, a young man was shot just outside Basra and killed, and that mass mobilization swept up to Baghdad where demonstrations happened every Friday in Tahrir Square, Freedom Square in the center of Baghdad. What were these people calling for? Rather fascinatingly and possibly counterintuitively to how we understand Iraq and the West, they were calling for a civic state. They were calling for the removal of religion from politics and they were chanting that the religious parties had robbed the population. Now that movement in 2015 has run through to these elections. And so these elections in 2018 will not only be what the governing elite want, a contest between ethno-sectarian parties that will then go in and loot government, it would also be a contest between those who are saying, let's move from identity politics to issue politics. Let's ask the question why we still can't get 24 hours a day electricity in the middle of summer when Iraq has had some of the highest ex oil exports in its history. So that, for us in the CIP Iraq, is what we're studying. We're bringing in young Iraqi researchers, sending them into ministries, sending them across the streets to ask those questions, while also, sadly, not ignoring the dominance of the Iraqi streets by militias, still justifying themselves in sectarian identity, uh, the, the, the potential for the reinvigoration of violence, and we're studying the rebuilding of the Iraqi army, which may deliver some democratically parliamentary controlled order. So that's CRP Iraq. Thank you. Even though you insulted me and called me a warmongering journalist, I, I am going to turn the other cheek. I said cheek. we were missing you yes. back then. <laughs> I'm going to turn the other cheek and say that Toby very modestly began by saying that perhaps many of you would think, why is Iraq part of this study? But I think you have brilliantly explained to us exactly why it should be, because it actually so neatly fits, and, and in some ways sadly so, but in other ways there are little flashes of hope, all of the categories that Mary set out. And that last moment of hope where you talk about how we saw in Iraq and also on the corruption issue, how Iraqis went from identity politics, and as you know in Iraq, identity politics is seared in people's sense of self, to go to issue politics, issues about really about the future of Iraq, and it's about daily lives in, in Iraq. And the three categories, political marketplace, I mean, never is there a place, all the so political budgets in the plural in Iraq, moral populism, so many competing uh, foundations for legitimacy, and civicness, the social contract, and competing social contracts between Baghdad and Erbil and Basra and Mosul. So we wish you well in your Iraqi research with the Iraqi scholars, because actually, I think you've proven just how essential to be in it, that there is something that can actually not just be free for research, but actually solve some really, really naughty issues about Iraq's future, as future as a state, and a place where people want, want to live and stay. But it is up to Javier Solana, with your, you know, your, your, your well-honed foreign policy mind, who's going to bring it all together for us. <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you very much. I, I have to start uh, by thanking uh, Mary Calder and the team and uh, all of you, because uh, having uh, been engaged in conflicts uh, 
since uh, the 1990s, 1993, 1994, 1995, etc., until today, all the things that have been done to try to stop them, or most of them, have really failed. I mean, they're not. not they may have failed in the medium term, and they may have failed instantaneously, or they may have failed in the long term. But it's very difficult to find any of the, the conflicts in which I was engaged in the 90s and early 90s, uh, even going back to the Balkans, uh, that they have been resolved completely. And that is a question that requires some research, some understanding why this is like that. And it's like that regardless of the continent, uh, regardless of the place geographically, some traits which are, to, I mean, are linked to regardless of where they happen, which is intrinsically linked to conflict, to war, to identities, which uh, may be in Asia, maybe in Africa, maybe in Europe. Uh, so this is, is the, the thing that uh, we have not understood uh, completely, and we continue to make mistakes. And that is what, uh, to me, is, is, uh, is the, the worst uh, that we have today, because we still uh, continue to make mistakes for lack of understanding, really, of what is the dynamics which occur uh, beneath uh, what we see in the, in the surface. Now, uh, I think that uh, the, what you are going to do, and I hope to, to be able to help you, is a very fascinating study. Is in a study uh, which has a touch to the real world, to the, to the bottom, and try to understand for the dynamics of the bottom uh, what is really what uh, we see in the surface and how we can try to solve. But, and you are trying to do it in a very fascinating manner, very uh, close to the, to the problems, and at the same time, uh, in a wide angular type of, of looking, you are going to look from just about, uh, not everything, but uh, the most important elements which are, which can link all these conflicts uh, to, together. And I hope very much that in a short period of time, we may have some more light, not to continue producing mistakes as we have produced. And I say that, uh, knowing what I'm saying, uh, because we, I think, we have produced many of these conflicts uh, or have contributed to maintaining life. I think that uh, many of the examples, or the three examples that you have placed, being Syria, <coughs> being Iraq, uh, being uh, Sudan, it's very difficult to understand them, the dynamic of today. You don't see what uh, outside forces have played in those conflicts. I mean, uh, we cannot uh, imagine, I mean, we cannot understand these conflicts without uh, seeing and understanding, which is a easier part, the role that the outside players have, have played. But you talk about Sudan. Uh, uh, Sudan is a conflict that has come from a long time back, in north and the south, but it was a country. It was a country. And it's not a country anymore. It's not a country anymore, not because the Sudanese would have done it alone. It was not a country today because powers of the world outside Sudan wanted to divide it, or preferred to have it divided. And uh, this is something that we have to put, uh, I mean, as a part of the problem. This is analyzed already by others, 
But the consequences of that, you have to also look at them. Because suppose that that uh, would not have happened. Uh, probably we will have uh, with Bashir or whoever uh, uh, an agreement that they uh, would have been together for a long, I mean, for a shorter period of time without the, 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 the brutalities of, the, of, of today, that they don't look to be uh, easily resolved because it's oil, because it's money, because all the marketplace is playing and uh, corruption and all that is playing at a, at a very important uh, dimension. Now, the second thing I would like to say is that uh, we have tried, if, if, remember what has been the, the procedure, it has been tried to find a settlement, tried to have a constitution, tried to have elections. And that has been the methodology that has been applied. And by now, we should realize that that methodology is not the appropriate one. That uh, election cannot be that, that early, that constitution cannot be done in, 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 the, in the middle of the conflict, and that uh, either we have to look to the, uh, the third, uh, well, the third uh, civilness, which uh, to my mind is to see how themselves, of parts of themselves can arrange uh, to get partial pieces that long that will last very long if they're not disturbed by others that may be part of the country or the outside players. But uh, we have seen together, Mary, you know, uh, moments in which uh, agreements of parts of the of the problem have been found, and uh, let it be alone, alone of quotation mark, because alone you cannot let them, but uh, they would have lasted for a long period of time and extended, because the beauty of these uh, small things is that uh, if they function, they extend, and they, they, they really can be as, uh, produce a, a multiplier for other peace uh, processes. Now, the, 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 so the, the, the idea of uh, uh, settlement, uh, constitution, um, elections, all that uh, in a compact uh, period of time. If it's possible in three months, if it thinks better. No? I mean, it, it really doesn't have, it doesn't have any, any sense. It has the sense that those who organize it want to get out as soon as possible, no? and then leave it uh, for themselves. But it's not because you want to resolve a problem with that, uh, with that, uh, with that uh, calendar. Now, the other thing that uh, has been touched, is um, a, a reconstruction. A reconstruction uh, of the, of, I mean, reconstruction is a noble, noble thing. Uh, but reconstruction starts uh, um, because others don't know what to do or what, I mean, they start doing it because it's the only thing we know how to do. We we'll put money and see if we reconstruct. But you put money and see if you reconstruct and creates uh, sometimes more problems that, that you want to solve. Because it's extra money coming in, you haven't resolved who is, who is responsible for the money, who is going to handle it, and uh, we enter into the, into the uh, corruption marketplace uh, that has, uh, has been signaled uh, by, by default. So I, 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 I think I'm talking too long, but let me, again, I started in this business in the 90s, and I go to places where I've been, and I see, uh, really this is still the, the wounds are there, the leaders more or less are the same, 
families, son, cousin, uh, or the different factions. Uh, this, uh, I mean, this breaking the country de facto by different uh, groups, etc., which, uh, which uh, is what we have to analyze, how to break these dynamics which are internal and uh, that uh, the, the outsiders cannot resolve them. The outsiders uh, can help if they are called to help, but not to be imposing anything, because if it's not accepted really, uh, we are not uh, doing anything uh, positive. But let me put an example of, of for instance, of Bosnia. Bosnia is not resolved, and we think it's resolved, but it's not resolved. And, uh, and not only is not resolved, it's, it's, it's a point of attraction for many other countries now that they want to, to, to really run Bosnia. <coughs> Turks, uh, Russians, uh, I don't know what, but uh, and it's going to be even more difficult to resolve it tomorrow, in a way, no? than it was uh, 10 years ago. Now, my sentiment is that this is a beautiful study, very, very necessary, very necessary, and uh, please do it uh, seriously, but do it rapidly. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, 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 Marie, because uh, you have a first year and second year. Yeah. I think the second year has to be uh, the second part of the first year, because if, if what you have gone to the second year, we need some resolve, some, you have to, <laughs> to roll on the sleeves a little bit faster, <laughs> because not really, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's, uh, I'm not saying anything uh, uh, negative, on the contrary, I think that uh, we really, we really need this, uh, this uh, analysis, the sooner, the sooner the better. I don't want to look at the day, I mean, today is the 15th year of the beginning of the Iraq war, today or yesterday or the day before yesterday, 15 years of that is stupidity, well, stupidity is, is, a, is a minor adjective, not to describe what, uh, what happened there, what has happened from there on. So go back to Bosnia, and uh, still we have a lot of things that uh, we have not studied properly, and it's the moment to give a chance to the academics and see if you, re academic practitioners, I mean, it's academic alone, academic plus practitioners, we can take a look afresh with this attitude of these three levels in which you, Mary, has explained so, so well. So I wish you all the best, <laughs> and you can count with me from uh, whatever uh, I may be to, to, to help. I think it's necessary, and it's a blessing that you are doing it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Avi Solana. With all due respect, you didn't get the memo. These are academics. They're hoping it will last six years. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't read the memo. It, they're academics. They want it to last six years. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I think actually... We'll find, we'll find another scholarship. <laughs> or you're, other topic. you're now the visiting professor. I, let me advise you. You want it to last. He is a, yes, he is well, a professor of practice. Actually, ah, he is a good practice. Good practice. But I think you actually added a really crucial point. So what was that expression that dates from a very long time? What is it? Think local and... Oh, no, think global and act local. It's just, it applies very, very well here because, again, back to the nature of wars of our time, I mean, take Syria, when you talk about the ever-expanding range of foreign powers involved, when they get involved, first of all, there's the, the battle for cash and arms, which changes local dynamics, and when you have 
let us say, to use a euphemistic word, the changes in the demographic balance, the concerns now about northern Syria, what will happen in the Kurdish areas, what has happened after the battle for Aleppo with some of the Shia being moved around. So actually the outside powers have a very direct impact on the local dynamics, the very kind of local dynamics that all of you see some kind of, of, um, of a solution to these intractable uh, conflicts. Before we, but thank you very much, and thank you too for your, for your real life um, experience that uh, you've seen on the ground and for mentioning Bosnia. And you too. Yes, <laughs> we're talking about you now. Um, so before, but before we go back to, to our scholars, Mary, do you want to just make a point, because you've been listening to all this, I mean, obviously you've been thinking about this, and now you've had three very, very good expositions of taking some of the ideas that you first sketched out. And I'm sure, if you have any sort of top thoughts in your mind right now? Gosh. Well, it's really nice to hear what all my colleagues are saying because it means this is a team that's really happening and, and we are actually very much on similar ways of thinking. So it's mm. kind of quite exciting to hear what, uh, what people are doing. Um, and do I want to, not for now. Okay, I well then pause. I just thought I'd I'll, give you this thing. Um, yeah. So the way we're going to, I'm gonna just, Maybe ask a qu one question to each each of our of our contributors, and um, and then I'm going to open the floor so that you can all have a say. Let me come with you, Rachel, because South Sudan, you know, was the youngest country on earth. You know, very even though it's an oil state, there's been the, the battle over oil has been has been part of that. Do the the kind of local the the local spaces that you find the local groups are they really so squeezed? by the bigger power such that it makes it very difficult for them to operate either in terms of resources or security or that their room to maneuver is incre increasingly squeezed out or can they still find that kind of room that they would need in the margins? Yeah, I think that's a good question and I think in part it, this kind of variability <coughs> matters. So it does matter, I mean Eddie Thomas is talking about South Sudan has talked about this kind of unevenness so the fact that you know, um, you don't need to just think about difference sort of in status, but also sort of spatial difference, where somebody is located in relation mm -hmm. to kind of center of power matters. And I think that that's true. Um, and I think, uh, however, you know, it is an issue we're gonna explore further in this project, but building on the work that we did previously in a previous project um, for the Justice and Security <coughs> Research Program, I've very much been trying to understand that local agency and kind of to what extent there is space for some form of constructive political agency um, and, you know, connecting to the ideas of civicness. And in particular, I've been looking at in relation to the law, which I think, you know, the law is um, not, you know, in the middle of a war, people sort of tend to think this is a lawless society, but actually law really matters. I mean, it matters in a number of levels. It matters as a repressive force in a kind of lawfare sense. Um, in the sense that people are being picked up, arrested, imprisoned, sentenced to death, et cetera, as part of the political strategies of the, of the elites. And it matters also in terms, you know, and it's very integral to the system, I think. You know, we're trying to understand the system. And so we, that is an integral part of this system. So if we want to understand local agency, I mean, there's sort of constant attempts to survive the system. But are there efforts to kind of, are there those sorts of attempts actually able to transform the system? And I suppose one of the things that I'm finding with the legal activism is, I mean, a lot of it is just about trying to survive a very repressive system. But actually, this small incremental task of trying to make the law work better is actually maybe in itself quite 
significant, maybe in the way that um, Javier Solano was talking about in the sense of a kind of more durable uh, form of um, change taking place and also in the sense that once we understand how people are operating at the margins to try to make to try to survive and also to try to improve the working of the law to make local courts function better and so on we also come to understand what is necessary to survive this kind of system because for those who are able to make a difference they need to understand not only they need to understand this political marketplace logic they need to understand custom the kind of local ideas of custom. They need to be able to navigate custom, you know, the repressive kind of political, you know, kind of um, contested leviathan, if you like, of the state, as Robert Luckham and Tom Kirk refer to this kind of repressive system. And they also need to have the kind of connections, maybe to humanitarian organizations, exposure to education, ideas for human rights, and so on. So they're taking all this kind of um, these sets of ideas and composing them into a response which is actually a response that is very clearly matched to the system. Mm. So even if it's not a, a, an overnight transformation, we see sort of incremental building um, of change, I think. Mm. Yeah. But important that the law, because that will be the framework of the society and yeah. the, the hope for the future that yeah. people will can yeah. live yeah. rule of law. Yeah, in places solving disputes yes. without exactly. violence. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. I want to ask you because this is where it might you, what you do comes into how the situation is, is changing on the ground and as we see in Syria where let us say the big and the essential war between the rebel groups, uh, the armed groups and the, the army and the Syrian government, yep. in large parts of Syria as you know it's coming to an end. Now it, it, it negotiated agreements with many of the armed groups which were akin to surrender but when it gets now to, to start not just rebuilding but running these areas yeah. is there are there opportunities for local groups not to not to, to try to be neutral to say we're just going to stay here and we're going to run the areas is there is there really going to be the kind of opportunities that can see those local dynamics across the country mm -hmm. playing a greater role even though there will be pressures of course from from the state in damascus there is an opportunity but it doesn't apply to everyone um, and i'll talk about examples from uh, the areas around Damascus um, where there has been conflict between the armed opposition and the regime and the, the solution was not simply as we've seen in some areas uh, to take a whole population and you know, move it somewhere else just to go and fight it again and then you know at another stage um, so there have been examples where like in Hami for example where uh, the let's say the the most extreme and the armed groups and the leadership have been taken out of the area, but the rest, the bulk of the membership of the armed groups were turned into local police uh, uh, groups. And these local police were functioning under the authority of civic committees. And these civic committees come from the civic leadership, traditional families, local civil society. So there was an agreement like, okay, let's form these committees because they knew that the young people of this area will listen to those you know, uh, authorities, civic authorities, and then let these young guys carry a light weapon under their authority. There has been an attempt to do something like this in Ruta, but it's, it's very difficult because um, several reasons. I mean, I think the regime still, wherever it can, you know, achieve a victory, it will it will just carry on to, to the end. But uh, since the, the, the population, you know, the number is very high, I think at some point it's gonna break and try to negotiate a different uh, uh, agreement. And uh, what one of the options on the table is to okay, ask the uh, leaders of the armed groups to go somewhere else and to 
break this connection between the local armed groups and their uh, regional uh, uh, supporters, which happen to be mm -hmm. here, Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia, to also, not just to break the funds, actually, it's also to break this, this political connection, and then form the civic authorities inside the Luta where those young members who joined armed groups, not because they want to fight the regime, or not they want, they don't want to fight. I mean, they were, you, you know, shop owners or uh, carpenters. I mean, but there was no, nothing to do in Ghouta but to join armed groups. If you want to have food on the table, you know, food your, feed your children, you have to join an armed group. So, so the idea was to take those out of the violence uh, cycle, uh, give them another opportunity. If they still want to take up arms, then they can uh, uh, join the local police committees. Um, again, I mean, there are so many obstacles against it, but there is an opportunity, and I think we need lots of efforts from outside and inside Syria to make such solution possible, because I think we're coming to a stage where, um, okay, the regime was able to advance in many areas, but where does this end? I mean, you know, the, w w when it finishes with some of the areas of Ghouta, I mean, it's going to move to Idlib, to Daraa. We're talking about millions and millions of people. Yeah. If, if, if it continues to use the same uh, uh, strategy it's using now with the help of Russia and Iran, I mean, we're going to see massacres, you know, of a very, very large scale. So uh, there has to be an attempt to create a different models and to think of different approaches of security sector reform, um, have forces on the ground from a more neutral background, have a UN on the ground. We need the UN to be there to do all these things, to, to help people to negotiate, to put different security solutions. But right now, most of the Syrians are left on their own to go and talk to the Iranians or Russians or the regime on their own. I mean, there's hardly anyone assisting on the ground. So everyone just pulled out very, very early. And now we have extremely uh, small UN uh, um, mission on the ground. And everyone just have to say, yeah, do, mm. it, do it their own way. They have to need, yeah. um, they need the permission from the Damascus to, yeah. to operate. Exactly. And so you're back yeah. to the centralization of power mm. and, um, but thank you, but I think I mean, seriously, an interesting example because it really emphasizes the nature of looking very carefully at the local dynamics because mm -hmm. each province and even cities within province have totally d very, d when there's similar themes obviously, but to resolve yeah. it as yeah. you've been studying. Um, one last question from you, I mean, perhaps a, d a different kind of a question for you uh, because it's the, um, the actual nuts and bolts of doing this kind of research. You mm -hmm. mentioned the Iraqi scholars, mm -hmm. and of course some parts of Iraq are more difficult to work in than others, and some of them are more open to a real uh, no-holds-barred kind of discussion and a, and a real uh, look at what the situation is on the ground, and there'll be, in other places, there'll be intolerance for it. How hard is it going to be for you to conduct this kind of research in, in Iraq? Well, I think we, we have uh, two major partners on the ground, one in Baghdad, uh, a think tank, and then uh, one, a, a university up in uh, Sulaymaniyah. And they, they can then, I suppose the most dangerous areas at the moment are in the disputed territories between the Kurdish regional government and Baghdad-controlled territory, and then coming down to Mosul. So the fringes where, the fringes of state control, where the Islamic State hasn't quite been broken, or the, the so-called sleeper cells, there we'll use, in, we'll use uh, local researchers, people we know, people who've already been trained uh, to, to, to get information. But even there, I mean, Iraq is probably at its most permissive in terms of research that I've seen it in my whole adult life that we can, wow. w w with a, and, and how long that lasts from the beginning of the talk, but from that point of view, you can move fairly easily. I was in Baghdad in December without any close protection and the, the atmosphere, 
Um, all the checkpoints, which is a revelation, were government controlled and very well disciplined. And the atmosphere on the street was incredibly optimistic. So I think there is a permissible a permissibility with, with, with small, uh, small areas. But I think the whole idea of this project is to quite rightly let the Iraqis do the research and speak for themselves. And then we will jointly publish their work. Mm. Very inspiring to know that there are Iraqi scholars who want to stay, want to want to work, because in some parts of Iraq, I mean, as you know, a lot of people have left, young people have left, but good to... to the restocking of the uh, Mosul University's library this week oh, by, yes. by donations, I think, shows not only that, 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 that hope can be delivered in, but also the academics and Mosul universities celebrating the fact that, that they see a move towards normality, towards reopening a university that was deliberately uh, trashed by the Islamic State. Mm. Universal love of books. Yeah, it was very, very inspiring to hear about the restocking of Mosul and, and the reaction of the professors there. It was very moving um, that it happened. It's beautiful. Now, ladies and gentlemen, to you. Great. We're expecting scintillating questions, really sharp questions that's going to move our discussion forward. That's not to make you scared about asking questions. Every question is a good question. If you want to play, put up your hands, so there's a gentleman here and then a gentleman here and a woman here. So we'll take, we'll take three, which allows us to see what, we'll have a mezze of questions to see what's on your mind. Okay, is the, how are the acoustics? Oh, there's, there, there is some, um, there is, shout, or speak loudly, <laughs> or unless you'd like the. Hello, uh, my question is for uh, Dr. Turkmani. Um, I find the point on uh, Syria, um, on civil society very interesting. And I was wondering about um, one aspect particularly. It seems to be that one of the tragedies has been that Syria has completely lost a sort of generation of very young, bright Syrians, well-educated, which are now making the fortune of British universities, Spanish, German universities, or, or businesses. What can be done? And, and a lot of these people are actually keen to get engaged uh, with, with what happens in the country. What can be done to make sure that this positive energy is not lost to the civil society in the future, and is that um, something that your program and your research group uh, looks to do? And, and, and yeah, just your opinion on this. Thank Are you, you a student here? Uh, I, I was a student uh, a decade ago. I'm, I'm an academic <laughs> now. You're not academic. <laughs> but thanks. But you're academic here. No, I'm University of Derby slash University of St. Andrews. So yeah, we are visiting London, and we, we wanted to come to talk. Great. Thank you Alain very much. Masana. Thank you. Oh, sorry, straight away. Oh, okay, I thought we were going to take the last questions. Um, yeah, what can be done to help the civil society? I mean, uh, sadly, some of the uh, great things that civil society achieved on the grounds, like take, for example, uh, in Aleppo, everything was trashed overnight when different military control came in place. Uh, similar things are happening now in some of areas of Ghouta, uh, but people are leaving, you know, many of the people who are in Ghouta live to Damascus now, and we're hoping that we build on their uh, expertise, uh, which we didn't have in Syria. We really lack this expertise because the civil society space was not even available. But you mentioned the, the, all the, the, those who left abroad and now are studying in the universities, we were trying to work with them as many as we can, and we're trying also to work with the locals inside Syria, especially civil society, who are interested in doing research, because there's a new tendency now that with the, with the new civil society organization to start doing research themselves. So we're partnering with some of these through the small grants, 
to work with them together, not just to deal with them like you're a local informant. No, you, we work with you, you know, we, we, we develop mutual understanding of how we frame this conflict and we'll do the research together. And we're helping this way, we'll build the capacity on the ground. And at the same time, we have a fellowship program that offers the opportunity to those who are, as you said, there's so many now Syrians who are, you know, either just graduated from master programs or just did their PhD and that offers them an opportunity. It's a bit limited, but it's there. And we are working with uh, some of them, not just on fellowships, like uh, small uh, contracts, for example, one, one, one of them is doing now our uh, a civil society contribution to Geneva is being carried out. Uh, this is a research we're doing. It's being carried out by one of the Syrians who came here on a Chivning scholarship and then was um, uh, stuck here. And we, we hope to be able to offer more of these opportunities because these people in particular, they offer a very unique understanding uh, to, uh, to the conflict and they're always, you know, they're so eager to learn. And we've noticed so many come from very technical backgrounds, uh, not related to social science or political science, willing to now understand, uh, to, to study uh, development studies, uh, anything related to reconstruction because they want to be a part of the future. Thank you. Thank you. This lady here, the stripe, yeah, it was you, yeah, you did, yeah. If you'd like to stand up, your voice will grunt like you're an opera singer, yes. Please. I have a question for um, both uh, Reem uh, uh, and also Rachel. Um, both of you mentioned that um, the peace process often leads to further conflict, but both of you are also mentioning that uh, the civil society, that there's hope in building the civil society and without foreign intervention in, into, you know, funding young men, driving them into conflict, that the civil society can form some kind of forms of governance. So what is the, how included are these smaller groups of civil society, not the bigger ones, but the smaller groups of civil society in the actual pre peace processes that are being created oftentimes by also foreign, uh, foreign powers. Thank you. Good, and while we're, we're speaking, you can get the microphone to the man in red. He can, he can think about his great question. Uh, Rachel? Um, yeah, thank you, Katrina. Um, so the South Sudan peace process has included some civil society organizations, and I mean, they wouldn't really be large <laughs> civil society organizations, but they are more formally constituted than the kind of activists that I've been talking about who are really very just, very much kind of uh, very locally based and just networked and more, more or less teachers and um, doing this kind of thing on a voluntary basis in their spare time. So those kind of people clearly aren't part of those discussions. But then the peace question is sort of pursued at a number of different levels. And I think one <coughs> of the things we want to really try to do um, in the project is also to look at um, peace mediation and <coughs> sort of work that's been done by the churches, for instance, and local uh, peace dialogues which are taking place and have actually been taking place for quite some time at different levels over the years and have had have shown some successes historically for instance um, the one process which is often discussed um, as one of the sort of real precursors to the um, peace agreement in um, 2005 and so actually you know there are examples of local peace mediations we want to look further into those for the CRP but I think it also comes back to this kind of question of the turbulence, so the extent to which this is a very, very turbulent context. And as you were saying, you know, kind of external interventions are also then re-alter the dynamics. So if you're intervening at a number of different levels, if there are peace 
dialogues taking place at various different levels. What does this do to turbulence? Is it exacerbating it? Is, you know, where are the sort of possibilities of having a more sort of consistent approach and how can that be pursued? Mm. Yeah, that's also. So, uh, yeah, how included is this civil society? And uh, as, you, as you asked, I mean, we should also particularly look at the, the small groups. We, we, you know, not just you know, take the very normative white glove approach to civil society, like that is the registered, organized organizations. No, we, the, the, uh, the average citizens who are trying to do something to help uh, in their society. Um, by and large, in every negotiation process we've seen in Syria, whether in Geneva or somewhere else, the negotiating parties attempt to exclude civil society. Uh, in Ghouta, for example, now I mentioned there was an attempt to, to build a civic committee. It was actually the armed groups who first tried to, you know, uh, to undermine it and say no. Uh, they, they, they really fought it very hard and were terrified from the prospect that there will be a civic committee talking about taking charge and negotiating anything that relates to, to civilians. In Geneva, we were actually lucky that we have a special envoy who strongly believes in civil society, and that's Stefan de Mistura. Uh, I mean, I've tried before, uh, before him with the previous envoys to advocate for the involvement of civil society, and it, 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 we really got nowhere. But uh, de Mistura, he himself took the initiative, and he said, no, we have to have civil society on the table. Uh, the process is still new, so we, they formed like a semi-formal process to include civil society in, the, in Geneva talks. Uh, it's, it's new, never been done before. This is why we're studying it as one of our research uh, topics, um, to see also how inclusive it is. And of course, it can't be very, you know, it's not ideal. There are attempts to, uh, to reach to you know, as many different groups as possible, but it's very difficult with civil society because it is chaotic by its, um, uh, its nature. But one important thing we learned from that experience is that I think one of the indirect benefits of bringing civil society to Geneva where the, the regime and the opposition are coming together is that both of them knows that before the special envoy comes and speak to them, there is a third narrative he's listening to. Mm -hmm. Because there is a war of narratives in Syria about this conflict and, and at the end of the day, it's actually, it's a war on civilians. You know? And who represent the best interests of the civilians and what they want is, is, I would say it's the civil society, it's not the regime or the opposition. So, so both these actors, they know that they can't just put their narratives uh, against the contrast, you know, narrative of, of, the, of the other uh, party. They know that the, the, the uh, special envoy has been listening to civil society who is very locally connected and they know what they're talking about. And that already we've seen, seen this having an effect on what they say and what they ask for. Including a very strong women's contingent. Yes. <laughs> um, Can I ask Yes. Because I think this is a very important question and is, in a way, very central to the way we are looking at things. Because I think the problem is that we tend to think of conflict as between different armed groups. And it's the different armed groups yeah. that we invite to uh, talk in peace processes. But actually, nearly all the conflicts that we study, in fact, very often started, maybe Iraq started with an invasion, but started with a democracy movement mm -hmm. and started with the regime reacting against a democracy movement. And people then think this was true of Bosnia, it was true of Syria, it was true of Ukraine. 
And people think, well, this is between the regime and the democracy movement. But actually, most of the people in the democracy movement are very much against violence. They think they'll never win against an oppressive regime. So the opportunity is seized by various violent groups to engage in violence. And they're all gaining from this for various, in various ways. And so what you actually end up is, as Reem said, is a war against civility. In fact, it's civil society versus the armed groups. And that's something that is not really understood at all. Um, and maybe Stefan de Mistura, it's now beginning to be understood. I think it is beginning to be understood in EU circles, in different circles, in, in um, UN circles. But the problem is it's beginning to be understood at just the moment we have this vicious geopolitics mm. of Iran, uh, Russia, Turkey, Trump's America, all trying to gain from these conflicts in different ways. And that's the problem, I think, that we're facing at the moment. When Javier says we should hurry up, we do need to hurry up, but <laughs> we're our <laughs> allies. <laughs> exactly. Maybe the African Union yeah. as well. We were <laughs> the man in red, yes. Um, hi. Uh, I'm you a uh, master student up at SOAS, and my area of kind of interest is the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. I know we've not oh. really touched on it too much on this um, panel. Another very important um, place. I suppose also if, uh, if Toby's missing you in, in Baghdad, it would also be good to see uh, a bit more reporting <laughs> from Congo as well. Yes, no, Congo is really one of the undercovered, uh, as South Sudan is as well, but definitely you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose my, my question is um, with the Congo in, in particular, uh, the Congo Research Group um, identified 179 um, rebel groups in North and South Kivu alone. Um, uh, what, what are the conditions, in specifically in Congo, but also in Syria, Iraq, and South Sudan, that make it such a um, hotbed for uh, these um, non-state actors, armed groups? And is there anything that can be done to alter the conditions to stop them mm. uh, continuing uh, on? I, don't I mean, know that's a question both about very detail, but there's also a broader question about the rise of non-state actors. So under yeah, uh, but I think in both cases, I mean, what this social condition does is to continually produce more and more and more armed groups. I mm. don't know how many armed groups. Thousands we've in Syria. Thousands oh, of armed thousands groups in, yes. in Syria. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it is interesting to think about both the similarities and the differences. Because I think what is strikingly similar is the way these were wars in which outside powers pounced uh, and have been <coughs> hugely exacerbated by the role of outside powers. Mm. And what you see is that DRC and Syria are by far the most violent, uh, with by far the highest casualties mm -hmm. of the wars mm. we study. So, um, and in fact, actually, a very grim statistic. I mean, we've been talking to various one of the fascinating things which I actually wanted to mention when we were talking about methods, so sorry if I'm slightly um, diverting, but it's not really a diversion a question, but <coughs> Elise mentioned at the, mo at the beginning this difference in technology. Syria is a war with total mobile phone coverage, yep. and so we have more data on Syria probably than any other mm -hmm. conflict. 
I mean, far from lacking data, we have too much. You know, everybody uses, every armed group has its own Facebook page. The Carter Center does fascinating analysis of the Facebook pages of all the different armed groups. We, in, our, in the Syria team, have developed a, an online platform that people with mobile phones can use that's encrypted with huge efforts by the LSE IT security team uh, so that people can send us material from different parts of <coughs> Syria. So we had a meeting to discuss uh, with, with, a, with a group that collects events-based data on wars called ACLIV, and we have a meeting to discuss all the different data sources. One of the things that came out was that the level of violent events, the number of violent events in Syria in a three-week <coughs> period was actually equivalent to the number of violent events for the whole of Africa. In Syria, yeah. Yeah. Now, this might be partly because we have so much more data mm. in Syria than we have in Africa. That may be partly the reason, but it also is, does show us that what's <coughs> going on in, in, in Syria is, is very extreme violence. And after all, there are, Charlie will correct me if I'm wrong, 75 outside powers all engaged in Syria. Mm. Yes, 71 in the coalition against ISIS, all bombing and doing different yeah. things. And then Iran, <coughs> Turkey, Russia, Israel. So there are 75 outside powers. And the fact that conventional forces, particularly bombing is used, does explain this extraordinarily high yeah. level of casualties okay. in Syria. A very brief comment from me. Yeah, I just want to add something to what Mary said. Uh, why there's so many, so much, uh, a very high number uh, of non-state armed groups? I mean, at the end of the day, non-state armed groups are also a foreign policy tool of another state, mm -hmm. and this state typically is a non-democratic state which cannot mobilize uh, a legitimate support for its foreign policy. So it uses tools like non-state armed groups in another country. So to me, this high number is actually a reflection of the failure of the region, mm. the lack of political legitimacy in all the countries around Syria, not just Syria itself. To continue for a moment on, on Syria, it is true that there are seven, I mean, I don't know how many countries are in but the, 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 the difficulty is that uh, the different countries from outside are entering into the conflict at different moments. Yes. And therefore, the dynamics of the problem is, is changing continuously. Now, remember, not long ago, we thought that uh, the Assad was uh, dead or whatever, was uh, losing. Mm -hmm. uh, today, uh, Assad is, is winning with capital W. And, and, this, and, and all that has been because the different players which had entered into the game. I mean, Turkey was not a player before, and now Kurdistan is, is much more, Kurdistan is much more important. Israel has entered later, but yeah. because of the, 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 we know because of why, no? But uh, that changes completely the, the parameters of the problem. Mm. Yes, it is wars, with, wars, wars within wars. 
Ladies and gentlemen, discipline is a very important part of democracy as well, and we've gone over five minutes over, but, but I, think it, I think it was well worth it. I haven't cut you off, have I, Rachel? Even. Um, I just like to be, before we go, just, you know, some of the social scientists would say, actually, we live in a, a world that's never been more peaceful, that they do these graphs and charts that looks around the world. But of course, it is skewed by the fact that it, there are these forever wars, these conflicts of the ends that we have been talking about tonight. So leave us with a bit of, let's leave us with a bit of sense of what you're all thinking. And I don't know whether to call this kind of a research, are you activist academics? Are you warrior <laughs> scholars? I think someone has to come up with a word for this new kind of an academic, which is not, to use the old phrase, the ivory tower ones. How many of you in the audience, just with a show of hands, how many of you in the audience wake up in the morning more worried about the war than you, the world than you were before because you think it is becoming a more violent and a more unstable world. How many of you are more worried? Mm, I'll look it up there. And, yes, your son. Oh my goodness, you've been brought up to think about peace. Look at this, son. that's the wrong answer. Ellie, did you have your hand up? How many of you, having heard about Mary Caldor's research project, are now more convinced that the world will become a more peaceful place? <laughs> Show of hands? Show of hands? Mary? <laughs> Should we start again? We haven't convinced them. I think we've had a very interesting discussion. We've just had a taste of what lies ahead for this research project, which will take anywhere from one year to 20 years, but hopefully somewhere in the middle. Um, but we know you'll be quick because I think, you know, as I began by saying, and all of us have been, this is not just research. These are lives, lives lost and lives lived in, in many places around the world. And we live in a very interconnected world. So thank you very much. Please join me in thanking all of our participants. And thank you.